Well, good morning, Good Shepherd, whether you are live or live stream. I'm Talbot Davis. I'm the pastor here. And in this Cross Purposes series, we have been taking this sort of inevitable march with Jesus to the cross, which we'll remember on Good Friday and then ultimately to the empty tomb, which is what next weekend is all about. Today's message is called Crime and Punishment. And so if you have your Bible with you, uh, we're going to invite you to locate Luke chapter 19 and maybe keep a finger at Luke chapter 22 and Luke chapter 23. We're going to do a little bit of jumping around in the Gospel of Luke, who's been our guide throughout this whole series of cross purposes. And uh, we believe at Good Shepherd that the, the biblical library... You, you may not believe what we believe yet. We just want to be honest and, and let you know what it is we in leadership believe about the biblical library. We believe that God breathed His life into its words. He put His truth onto its pages. The Bible really is inspired and eternal and true. We believe that. And because we believe that, we do kind of something different when we're talking about the Bible. We do this together. We lift it up. And, and if you've not uh, been with us live or live streamed before, and you're thinking that's a little bit strange that everybody lifts up their phones or their Bibles or whatever, we admit it. It's a little bit strange, but we found it's a moment of oddity that shapes our identity as a community. We're a collection of people joyfully surrendered to the authority of the Word and eager for its power to be let loose on our lives. Amen? And before I say any other words, let's pray. So God, thank you. Thank you for your Word, for the Holy Spirit who breathed life into it. And I just want to, before my message begins, acknowledge that I need that same Holy Spirit to breathe life into me from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head to give a fresh pouring out of everything that's good and joyful about Jesus so that that goodness and joy would be contagious? And would you not only pour out a fresh anointing on me, but on everyone who's within the sound of my voice? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the ways you continue to answer these prayers. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as you uh, may or, or may not know, and if you don't know, that's okay as well, throughout this Cross Purposes series, we've been taking really a pretty close look at all the ways that Jesus is perfectly executing His own execution. That from this moment in Luke chapter 9, and it's chapter 9 out of a 24-chapter book, so it's before Luke, the biographer of Jesus, is even halfway done. From that moment on, when Jesus set his face, it says, resolutely to Jerusalem, he will not be deterred. He, he is going to die. He's perfectly executing all the myriad of details around his own execution. And, and in this journey from Luke chapter 9, when it says he's going to Jerusalem, to Luke chapter 23, when he actually dies, all along the way, Jesus is like this master choreographer of his own dance towards death. Really, the, the, the story and the, and the way that Luke tells it is is mesmerizing. 
And it's why this story in Luke's hands has stood the test of time. I don't know if you've thought about it that way. Man, the gospel story has stood the test of time. Unlike all those stories and all that information that sucks the life out of us now, in the, in the gospel of today, you know, what you see on social media, all that stuff is such a fad. All that stuff is so temporary. It will not stand the test of time. The gospel does, and as we think about all that Jesus undergoes when he sets his face resolutely towards Jerusalem, there are a million little details that all have to be just right for the crucifixion to come off in the way that it does. A million details that have to be exactly on target, and Jesus gets them all. He gets them all right. I I can't wait to show you what I'm talking about. Like, Like a lot of you may know that on the first day of the last week of his life, Jesus rides into town on the back of a colt. And and when he rides into town on the back of a colt, there are these crowds on the either side of the road, and they have palm branches, and they're shouting out Hosanna. This little story, which, which you may or may not know, and either way is okay, it's the source in church land of what we call Palm Sunday, which is, hello today. Yeah, But have you ever thought, well, where did the cult come from? Indianapolis? Baltimore? No. Was it Jesus' cult? No. Did he steal it? Was he a cult rustler? No. Did he hypnotize it? He was a cult whisperer. No. Instead, it's very interesting where that cult came from. Take a look at Luke chapter 19, verses 30 and 31. And Jesus is talking to his followers, and he selects a couple of them. Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, anyone like, I don't know, whoever owned the colt, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. So, so you, you, you see the plan? Go into this village ahead of you, find a colt who's never been ridden and that you've never seen, and, and essentially just steal it, okay? Okay, guys, you're going to do this strange thing, and, and people will say exactly what I say they're going to say. What happens? Verse 32 through 34, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. You might want to underline that. Just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why, yes, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. And evidently that answer was good enough. Ding, ding, ding. Everything happened exactly the way Jesus said that it would happen. This story is off to a marvelous start. He's batting a thousand. He's getting all the details just right. But Luke, in telling the story, and he wants us to know all the things Jesus got just right, Luke's kind of just warming up. 
Because that happened on the first day of the last week of Jesus' life. And then as the week progresses, it's time for the Jewish feast of the Passover, which is the, takes place in something called the Upper Room that you may have heard of, the Upper Room, and it's the source of Holy Communion. But have you, have you ever thought, well, where did that there Upper Room come from? Was, did they, did they, was it an Airbnb that they rented? A verbo vacation home? Was it one of the disciples' houses already? No, no, look where that upper room came from. This is Luke chapter 22 and verses 8 through 12. Look what happens there. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Well, where do you want us to prepare it? They asked, verse 10. He replied, as you enter the city... A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. Oh, that's not creepy at all. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs all furnished. Make preparations there. You see this? Go into the town. You're going to see some random guy carrying a a jar of water. You've never met him. You don't know him. He doesn't know you. Follow him. No alarms going off there. Go into the house that he goes into. Talk to the owner and ask if you can have his upper room. And look, I love how verse 13 describes what happens. They left and found things, what? Just as Jesus had told them. Ah, You've seen that before, haven't you? Just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Again, Jesus is absolutely batting a thousand. He's pitching a perfect game, whatever baseball analogy you want. He's getting all these little details, these improbable, unlikely details, and Jesus is getting them all Right, nothing, he is so, Luke is such a master and he wants us to know that Jesus, not only is Jesus perfectly executing his own execution, but Jesus is in charge of all the details. He's so firmly in control of how his own life is getting ready to spin out of control. Those two details I've shown you how how do you go into town on the colt and and how are you going to have the last supper that's really just the runway and the crucifixion itself is is actually the flight it's where it's all been leading to and 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 this whole pattern of Jesus in being in control of how things are spinning out of control This, this whole idea of Jesus getting everything just right goes into absolute overdrive once he's on the cross take a look at Luke chapter 23 and verse 32 this time. This is when Jesus is on the cross being crucified. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be crucified. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, and one on his left. And I don't know if you know this or not, but by placing Jesus in between these two criminals, it was a way of magnifying his humiliation, multiplying his shame. 
Jesus has spent almost his entire life with outcasts, and now he's going to spend his entire death surrounded by outcasts as well. It's all by design. And then while he's surrounded by these two criminals, look at Jesus' first words from the cross on, at verse 34. It says, it says this, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. His first words, okay, Lord, Father, I've been humiliated. I've been stripped. They are multiplying my embarrassment by putting me between these two guys. I've been scourged and whipped and beaten and I'm bloody and naked and humiliated. But Lord, but Father, could you make it good for these guys who are doing all this to me? kind of perfect, isn't it? Notice how the mocking, all that Jesus endures, continues, verses 35 through 38, same, same chapter. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the, the chosen one. And the soldiers also came up, and they mocked him, and they offered him wine vinegar, which we think actually came from public latrines. That's what they, how they gave Jesus the wine vinegar. It wasn't to soothe his thirst or increase his comfort. It was to magnify his humiliation, amplify his discomfort. And they said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Think about it. We happen to believe, you, you may not believe this yet, but we happen to believe that, that Jesus is in charge of everything. He's God come in the flesh. And think of all that he could have done to these people who were mocking him. He could have called down armies from heaven. He could have gotten the revenge he so very much deserved. He could have gotten even and more. And yet he didn't. At every level, he restrained the power that was within his grasp. And I happen to believe that Jesus was never more powerful, never more godly than when he refused to use the power that was within him. His, his great restraint is the sign and the show of his great divinity. And the mocking continues with one of the criminals who's on one of the sides of him. Look at what happens in verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. Man, just, just think of everything that Jesus has gotten right in the story to this point. I mean, he says there's going to be a cult and there was a cult. And he says, follow some guy into his own house and ask for his room and he's going to give you the room. There's that restraint that he showed. There's the revenge that he delayed. There's the forgiveness that he asked. Point by point by point, moment by moment by moment. All these details have to be just perfect. And Jesus gets every single one of them right. The list of things that Jesus does right in this awful, horrible, sordid tale, the list of things he gets right so, so long. And the list of things that people do wrong? Whew! 
I mean, just in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, he's been betrayed by Judas. He's been denied by Peter. And you're like, well, with friends like that, who needs enemies? Apparently, Jesus does. Because after he's betrayed by, Peter, uh, by Judas and denied by Peter, he endures the mocking, he endures the scourging. And, and, and we, we, we believe, again, we believe Jesus is actually the creator. And when you understand that we believe Jesus is the creator of everything that we see, look how it is that creation treats its maker. And Jesus refuses to get that revenge. He endures it. He takes it all. So yeah, the list of things that Jesus has done right is is vast. The list of things that people have done wrong is monumental. And growing. A long list of things that people do wrong to Jesus about Jesus. Jesus didn't stop on this day of the crucifixion. Man, I think before my conversion and I uttered some of the most vile and disgraceful things about this Jesus whom I now serve, I think about after my conversion and continuing to use his name in vain or even on, a, on occasion in ways that manipulate people, which is even worse. Or maybe you. The time you denied Jesus or at least soft-pedaled how much he means to you so that you might fit in better at work or you might fit in better at school or you might fit in better on Instagram because you know you got to fit in really good on Instagram. That thing you did last week that you're hoping no one ever finds out about. The fact that there's likely someone here live and someone tuning in live stream who's shown up to work or shown up to church or tuned in to church and you're hungover this morning. And you can't believe I said that because you didn't think anybody knew. You thought you were the only one. You wouldn't be the first and you're likely not the last. Yeah, the, the list of things that Jesus did right is so remarkable. And the list of things that we have done and continue to do wrong is absolutely monumental, which is why this whole remarkable story and the skillful, brilliant way with which Luke tells it all builds to the other criminal. Not the one who mocked Jesus, the one on the other side, who in this moment of incredible self-awareness, look at what he says to his criminal colleague who's just mocked Jesus. Look at what it says in chapter 23, verses 40 and 41. But the other criminal rebuked him, meaning not Jesus, rebuked his criminal friend. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, verse 41, we, meaning you and me, the two criminals in this trinity of people being crucified, we're punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. You might want to underline that word deserve. We are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, 
He's done nothing wrong. We are getting what we deserve. What is happening to us on this on the cross, fellow criminal? We are getting our just desserts. We have earned this. But this guy, for everything that he's done right, what, what is he getting as his reward for everything that he's done right? He's getting the same punishment that we have. And then this man's self-awareness and his Jesus awareness continues to escalate. And he turns in verse 42 and he says, Then he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds to that with this unfathomable promise. In verse 43, Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The reversal? Do you see the reversal, we're getting what we deserve. This guy who's, who's done everything right, he's paying the price that, that we have richly earned with what we have done. This reversal is at the heart of it. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the purpose of the cross, because this series is cross purposes, and all of a sudden, the purpose of the cross is, is blindingly, abundantly clear. And here it is, Good Shepherd, inspired by something I heard Pastor Kyle Eidelman say. And, and it is this, Jesus was punished for everything we did wrong. We're rewarded for everything he did right. And that's the gospel. Hallelujah. That's the good news. That's the best news ever. That Jesus takes the punishment for everything we have done wrong. And in response, we get the reward for everything he did right, which, hello, is everything he ever did. Can I hear an amen for that? We get the reward for everything he did right, and that is is the gospel. Jesus took what we deserve so we could take what he earned. Jesus is punished for everything we did wrong and we get the reward for that long, incredible growing list of what he did right. See, all that, all that was done to Jesus on that Good Friday and, and every day since, has to be punished. Just has to. Every one of you who is a parent or a grandparent or you've been around parents and children, you know, don't you, that if you refuse to punish when your kids disobey, all you are doing is begging for more disobedience. So when you got a toddler and they run out to the busy street down a hill and you, ah, they got to learn. No, you, you got to pick that toddler up and you got to punish in just a way so the toddler knows, oh, I don't run to a street. You are begging for more disobedience. It's the same with God. Disobedience, sin, it's an old fashioned word that doesn't mean it's not a true word, has to be punished. If it wasn't, he wouldn't be God. And the flip side, all the good things that Jesus did, what gets rewarded gets repeated. And all the good things that Jesus did from the cult 
to the Last Supper, to the restraint, to the delayed revenge, all of that. It has to be rewarded. But the good news of the gospel, the incredible reversal of the gospel, is that the reward that Jesus so richly earned, I mean, Jesus earned that reward reigning and ruling in paradise, in glory for all of eternity. And that belongs exclusively to him. The reward that he earned, he ends up sharing with us. It's kind of like, kind of like the Heisman Trophy in football. Y'all want me to strike that? Yeah. And, and let's say, let's say you won it. You won the Heisman Trophy. You brushed for the most yards, you lifted the most weights, you scored the most touchdowns. You won that trophy and you deserved that trophy. And yet when you got the trophy, you turned and you handed it to this guy who barely got any playing time at all on the team. All this guy did was suck up valuable oxygen that the rest of the team could have been using. And he gets the Heisman that you won. That's what it's like. Jesus gets punished for everything we did that was wrong. We get rewarded for everything he did what that was right. And that, my friends, is the gospel. Or maybe it's like that episode of the, the cop drama Blue Bloods that I saw not too long ago. And, and uh, it's a Friday night show. It's pretty good. Tom Selleck, Bridget Moynihan. Not that I watch it for Bridget Moynihan. And it's on on Friday nights, and, and in this episode that I saw of, of Blue Bloods, there was a, a, a guy in the show who uh, had been arrested for vehicular manslaughter, drunk driving, he killed a child, awful, throw the book at him. And yet, while he was out on bail but awaiting sentencing, the same guy, vehicular manslaughter guy, he comes up, up, upon this playground where uh, uh, kind of a maniac with a knife is threatening to kill all the children on there. It's a TV show. Go with me, okay? It's threatening to kill everybody on that playground. And so vehicular manslaughter guy leaves to the rescue, tackles maniac with the knife guy, and makes sure that the children are all saved. In the process, vehicular manslaughter guy gets stabbed a little bit, but he survives. He's okay. And yet the sentencing remains. He gets out of the hospital and the sentencing remains and it's all up to Bridget Moynihan to decide is she going to throw the book at the guy or in light of what he's done or not. And she asked the, the most remarkable question. Would you rather be judged on your worst day or your best day? Whew. Would you rather be judged on your vehicular manslaughter day or on the day that you saved a playground full of children? Would you rather be judged on the conference championship that you won in high school or the website you visited last night? Would you rather be judged on your retirement dinner or the little bit of fraud that you committed along the way? Would you rather be judged? Would you rather be judged on your best day or on your worst day? And the good news that I have for you, Good Shepherd, is neither. You're not judged on your best day. You're not judged on your worst day. You're judged on Jesus' cross day. And tell me that's not the best news that you and I could have. 
Because on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty of everything we did wrong. And we get the reward for everything he did right. And that is the gospel. And I just have to ask you, I just have to ask you, do you have that same self-awareness of the criminal on the cross? The, the, the kind of self-awareness that, that looks at Jesus and realizes, I bring nothing. I got nothing. When it comes to where I'm going for my own eternity, I got nothing but my own sin. And only when you get the gravity of sin can you possibly get the levity of grace. We don't sing average grace after all. Because we don't deserve it. We sing amazing grace. Because Jesus gives it. A little bit like the woman who was in her mid-90s and I visited her shortly before, shortly before Christmas of 2020 and she was under hospice care and, and, and I, you know, I was hoping my visit would bring her comfort and, and she, her, her body was tired and she was ready. But she wasn't ready as a transaction. Oh, I got my ticket punch. I'm going to heaven. She was ready because she was going to meet her Savior face to face. And when we were finished with the visit and, and I prayed and, and, I, and I thought to myself, because I'm such a medical expert, you know, I thought to myself, well, she's in her 90s and she's under hospice care and, and, and her body's ready, but she looked great to me. I think she's got six months to live or so. Six days later, not six months, six days later, she was out of this world and into the arms of her Savior. But at her service, which happened at the Moss campus, at her service, what could we do in light of a life like that? What could we do but celebrate the reward she was living in at that moment? What could we do except express our gratitude for a Savior who had been punished for everything she'd ever done wrong. And she was now reaping the reward of everything he ever did right. What could we do except ask in that glory? How about you? Jesus was punished for everything you did wrong. You can be rewarded for everything he did right. That is the gospel. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, thank you that we can gaze at your perfection. Thank you. Given this painful assignment, you got all the details just right for the sake of our souls. We give them now to you. In your name we pray. Amen.